Hello and welcome to show 21 of All Back to Bowie's. This show is called Floating in a Most Peculiar Way, The London Scots. Uh, this show was, I think, probably my personal favourite show of the run, at least so far. Uh, partly because the calibre of guests that we had was just so terrific. We had, uh, as our central guests, Stephen Greenhorn and Rona Monroe. Uh, we knew that Rona was going to be at the centre of the festival when we booked her because we knew the James Place was going on, but nobody had any idea that they would be quite as successful and extraordinary as they turned out to be. So it was an enormous privilege to have her with us and... Um, Stephen and her just talk so interestingly and beautifully about their experience as Scottish writers living away from Scotland and their reflections on the referendum. Uh, we also have some terrific provocations in this show. I think Adam Ramsey's is uh, superb and uh, David Morgan also brings a brilliant perspective to bear. Um, so it's a terrific show great music great poetry again um so don't let's waste any more time please sit back and enjoy floating in a most peculiar way the london scots hello that's great it's always great when you speak back immediately i know that you're going to be a fantastic audience i'm um, going to give you a second chance hello, hello. hello. you've done this before haven't you a, <laughs> Hello and welcome to All Back to uh, uh, Bowie's. Bowie's. My name is David Gregg. My name is Linda McLean. And All Back to Bowie's, Bowie's. began when, um, way back in May, I guess you might remember, March, May, the, um, uh, at the Brit Awards, David Bowie assumed the corporeal form of Kate Moss, shapeshifter that he is, and announced... Scotland, stay with us. And so a group of us decided that that was such a kind invitation we'd take him up on it. And here we are in David Bowie's Manhattan rooftop yurt. Thanks, David. Um, and uh, we've been here for the whole of the fringe. It's been very, very nice. We also podcast every show. And um, yesterday I started to realise that the podcast listeners. Um, you know, they have the sound effect of, the, of, of Bowie's Man Manhattan rooftop yurt. Um, you can hear he's having a bit of work done on the kitchen. Um, <laughs> but they don't know what it looks like. So, so uh, yesterday we began the project of just describing a bit the atmosphere here inside this gold lame yurt um, with the uh, lightning bolt-shaped swimming pool. And the, the sundial. The gorgeous, gorgeous sundial, and also the people, the audience, it's difficult for the podcast listeners, but the audience are sort of lounging around on scatter cushions. With martinis. With martinis. Uh, Iggy Pop's in, I can see at the back there. Hello, Hi, Mr. Hello Mr. Pop. Um, Debbie Harry, I can see as well. So it's really everyone's here. La Toute Manhattan is here uh, for, for this show. So today's... Um, Today's show is all about... I've been doing this too long, haven't I? I guess you can tell I've gone, I've gone stir-crazy. Now, the, um, today's show is called Floating in a Most Peculiar Way, London Scots. 
and we have some fantastic guests for you who we will introduce later on. But before we do that, there's a very important thing. At Bowie's, there's a house rule where we don't ask um, yes-no questions. We don't ask binary questions. We're way beyond the reductive here except on one issue, because there is obviously one issue that's dividing Scotland. Their most important issue. Families are arguing about it. Uh, we may need a service of reconciliation about it. And that question is this. Is it Bowie or is it Bowie? <laughs> so every day we've been having a referendum uh, and we're keeping a running total. Yesterday there was a major blow for the uh, Bowie campaign as Kirsten Innes, our co-host, came out for Bowie, having been undecided, showing the um, a movement of w women voters to uh, to Bowie, which was um, yeah sad for, for my side, which is the Bowie side. But anyway, let's start with a referendum. So, straightforward, do you agree that David Bowie is pronounced Bowie? What? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, Thirty-two. So, three. So, uh, and I think that is Bowie's increasing its lead, uh, which is which is quite extraordinary. Um, I think the three major labels yesterday came out um, saying that they simply won't sell you records if you ask for it by um, by by using the name Bowie because it is correctly Bowie. But hopefully, hopefully that will shift opinion. Yeah, David, and the repercussion of the vote means that we're tied to using his real name, which is Bowie, for the rest of well, the day. Which is Davo Max, which is David Jones. But anyway, leaving all that aside. So here we go. Let's jump in. Let's do this. So. A, oh, one last thing before we get to the proper guests. There is a, t a thing we ask uh, the audience to do every day, um, a task, a little bit of homework, which is we ask them to complete a sentence. Yeah, and today's sentence is, London is. We've had a couple of sentences, uh, we've had sentences every day, and a couple that come to my mind where on the first day it was, Scotland is like... Dot, dot, dot. And uh, the next one was Braveheart is... Dot, dot, dot. And so we want you to... Um, just find about your person. You'll have a scrap of paper, you'll have something. You'll have the back tickets. of a receipt, a bus ticket, it's the fringe. You'll definitely have flyers. A, some of you will have pens. If those of you who have pens are willing to, in the spirit of social democracy, share your pens, we'll all do this. So through the course of the show, you don't have to do it right now, but throughout the course of the show, have a think about the sentence, London is... dot dot dot. In your and, most creative way. Yeah. And what we'll do at the end of the show uh, is we'll gather all them together and we'll use them to create a kind of crowdsourced poem. So it's your chance to be creative. Don't, it, I mean, you can be political, you can be straightforward, you can speak from the heart, but it's also a chance to think about um, what London might mean to you, what does it conjure up to you, what images does it conjure up to you, what does it make you think about and reflect on that throughout the course of the show. Cool? Okay, fantastic. Um, well, every day at Bowie's, it makes me sore to say that, every day at Bowie's, 
we have uh, a musical guest, and today we have an absolutely fantastical music, an absolutely fantastic, not fantastical, uh, an absolutely fantastic musical guest who has himself, uh, I think it's fair to say, got big Manhattan connections, um, but currently uh, uh, residing in Edinburgh, the absolutely wonderful uh, uh, singer and songwriter and musician, Latch. Please welcome to the stage, Latch. Thank you very much. Hello, everybody. Hello. Uh, I was listening to the backstage to the argument whether it's pronounced David Bowie or David Bowie. I must say I've always just pronounced it Mark Boland, but I don't know. <laughs> So I, I live here now in Edinburgh, I'm from New York City, and I've toured the UK a lot. And I always was uh, very excited coming over because I was very enthralled with uh, the pop culture from here when I first, you know, so growing up, uh, uh, Thunderbirds are go, Doctor Who, you know, uh, on TV. I thought when I'd come over, I'd turn on the TV and it would just be Thunderbirds as soon as I turned it on. And I'd turn on the radio and, uh, you know, it would be, you know, I'd just turn it on, it'd be The Clash, you know, and the jam would be playing. But then I got here and I turned on the TV and it was Cheers. And I put on the radio and it's Bruce Springsteen and Neil Young. I was a little disappointed, I must say. I got out of the I got out of the airplane the first time I got here. I got out of the airplane at Heathrow, and I went to the airport. And I went to the magazine stand because I wanted to see what the new thing, you know, because we don't have rock and roll magazines in the states anymore. So I was like, Mojo, Q, Uncut, Enemy. This they, they're going to tell me the new thing to listen to when I get here. You know, what, what's the happening thing? And I got there, and there on the covers of Mojo, Uncut, and Q, I see Led Zeppelin. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones. I'm like, come on, where's the new thing? It's like if it was 2,000 years ago and Jesus had just given the Sermon on the Mount, one of the great political religious speeches of all time, and that month God Magazine put Thor on the cover instead. You know? <laughs> now, I don't really, couldn't really tell you what it's like to be a uh, Scot living in London, but I know what it's like to uh, be a misplaced person. And, uh, feel as if the country you're in may not necessarily be reflecting the way you feel about life. So I have a song about that. I love America. I love America. I love America, but she don't love me. She loved me. I love America, but she don't love me. Now maybe if I was a perfect girl, maybe if this were a perfect world, maybe if I wasn't young. Sick and gay, 
baby then she would turn to me and then she loved me she loved me yeah yeah later on. Uh, now every day we have a provocation. Today is a slight exception. Today we have two provocations. The point of the provocations is really um, not to provoke ire or uh, incredulity, but to provoke thought and um, just take a different angle on things. Uh, today the theme is London, Scots, displacement and so on. And our first provocation is from Adam Ramsey. Please welcome to the stage, Adam Ramsey. How are you all doing? Great. Um, so, uh, I'm, you wouldn't guess my accent, but I'm Scottish and I live in Oxford, which these days is basically a suburb of London, so I think that counts. Um, and I, I thought I'd write, um, so when a few celebrities in London wrote uh, to Scotland saying they want us to stay in the Union. Lots of my other Scottish friends who live in London shared that and said that that expressed how they felt. So I've written a letter back to the celebrities, but it's really for those, those friends of mine 
in London who uh, who were born or grew up in Scotland and live there now and are asking Scotland not to leave for that reason. Dear celebrities, thank you for your letter from London. It's genuinely nice to see people across these islands engaging in a debate which will affect all of us. I thought it might be helpful to acquaint you with some of the basic terminology of this campaign. A nation is an imagined community. A state is basically government. And so that means that a nationalist, by definition, is the person who believes that the boundaries of a nation, of an imagined community, should be coterminous, should correlate with the borders of a state. So when you say that you love us and that you value our bonds with us, and therefore you think that we should continue to share a prime minister, what you're saying is that you're a nationalist. Now, I don't find that nationalism particularly offensive, but I do think it's a little bit anachronistic. You see, my imagined community, my, my nation, the people with whom I have the closest bonds, are people like me, activists across the world, who spend their time campaigning on issues like democracy and poverty and climate change. It's my friends from university who are scattered all across the globe, but still connected through modern communication, through Facebook chat and Twitter. And so the idea that you ought to, in order to love someone, you need to share a prime minister with them, seems to me a little bit outdated. And perhaps, therefore, the question that we need to ask in this referendum is a slightly different one. Maybe what we need to ask ourselves is, do we want the politicians who we need to hold to account to be closer to us or further away? Is it a coincidence that smaller countries in Europe tend to be more prosperous? Or is it because governments can more nimbly intervene in economies in smaller countries? Do we wish to be governed by Holyrood, which is a kind of normal, relatively democratic Western Parliament? Or do we want to be run from Westminster, the least democratic constitutional settlement in the Western world? Do we, do we want to stay in a country which, because of having the least democratic constitutional settlement in the Western world, has ended up as not only the most unequal country in Europe, but in fact twice as unequal by wealth as any other country in Europe, and soon to be more unequal than any other country in the Western world, even America, if trends continue. Do we think it's more important to cluster together in a bureaucratic behemoth of a state in the modern world, or is it more useful, perhaps, in the modern world to join the international network of nations? So, dear celebrities, I love you too. And, well, most of you. David Starkey's a racist. Um, but most of you are lovely, really. And, and I just also love Irish people too, and Italians, and Iraqis, and people all over the world. And I don't think, particularly, that the bonds of love are interwoven with the chains of office. I think we can probably love each other irrespective of our government. And so for all the above reasons, and not because of any offence I wish to cause you, I'm going to be voting yes next month. Thanks very much. Um, thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. Uh, as I say, we're going to have two provocations today. Uh, the second is in the form of a letter from London um, by the author, poet, Stornoway uh, born, I think, author and poet, uh, and Gaelic uh, novelist Kevin McNeil. Because Kevin is obviously not with us, uh, his provocation is going to be read for us by Linda. Sorry, Linda.
Okay. Yes, I am not Kevin McNeil, but you have to imagine him here. Um, I'll do my best to deliver his words. Dear Davy Bowie, Davy Gregg and friends, let me begin by putting my non-existent electoral card on the metaphorical table. I am a Hebridean, living in London, married to an Englishwoman, and if I had a vote, I would be voting for Scotland's independence. I visited and lived in a great many towns and islands and cities. London is the last place in the world I expected to find myself settling, but life can be deliciously unpredictable. And when a who, not a what, attracts you to a place, you owe it to yourself to follow your instincts. And if it's true that no snowflake ever fell in the wrong place, I can easily resolve myself to my unexpected fate. Living here in England's capital city, I have learned that this is a capital which is in many ways not representative of its country. And furthermore, residing out with Scotland has afforded me a certain clear-eyed detachment. When I was young and had more outrage than intelligence, I wrote occasionally about how frustrating it was that my passport was a fake, since no part of me was or ever felt British, etc. I still don't identify with Britishness, but nowadays I have a little more equanimity. I can appreciate London, a true world city, for her multiculturalism, her vibrancy, her scale of ambition, but I can also balance that against her narcissism, her distrust, her greed. These qualities, of course, are all relative and far from unique. Similarly, I feel gratitude for Scotland's friendliness, her natural beauty, her artistic heritage, but I cannot deny her insularity, her sectarianism, her self-destructive streak. London has been slow to catch on to the crucial importance of the referendum debate. To begin with, there was a disconnect, a sense of apathy towards it, Indeed, the metropolitan media was relatively indifferent to the independence issue until recently, when the significance and potential repercussions of the vote seemed to rouse journalists with a jolt. I think people here were complacent partially because few really believed Scottish independence to be a viable prospect, and partially because Scotland seemed remote, peripheral and compliant. It hasn't helped that both sides of the debate have indulged at times in pettiness, bitterness and general immaturity. Maybe some amount of this is inevitable in an issue that provokes comment from such a large number of people. But still. These days when I meet Londoners, the first thing they ask me is which way the vote will go. I tell them it's too close to call. The vast majority of Londoners I've spoken with on this issue, people from diverse backgrounds, have been firmly in favour of staying together. They don't want us to leave, not that we'd be going anywhere other than into a better future. And I find their resistance to independence baffling, given that so many people down here genuinely think of Scotland as something of a drain on resources. Shopkeepers tell me that the Scottish economy will fail, that we can't have the pound, even as they refuse to accept my Scottish tenor. Suits and semi-bohemians alike tell me Scots have too much influence in politics and the media in London, which again strikes me as odd. Growing up in the Hebrides, I realised my people, the Gales, were no more than a stereotype, an afterthought at best to those down south who had actual power over education, the media and politics. Scotland has suffered a great deal of cultural collateral damage as a result of her imperial labour, 
complicity, we must concede, being among the more insidious of those damages. London's influence over a disenfranchised Scotland has been overwhelming and often unhealthy. Someone wrote an article recently about how London, being an entity unto itself, is virtually independent from the rest of England. And so London ought really to have affinity with Scotland's potential for independence. But London, in fact, is out of harmony with Scottish society and its values. One of the major concerns here is that of power. London has an ingrained, imbalanced, self-serving relationship with power and a concomitant sense of entitlement. What's lacking here is equality. It's my contention that an independent Scotland could reverse the old model. Instead of having British equals English culture foisted upon us, we could bring about an independent, politically reinvented Scotland that has a beneficial influence on its reappraised neighbour to the south. I realise that's a pretty big task, but with determination, insight and belief, we could do it. I should add that I'm not one of those people who buys into facile, Scotland always punches above her weight jingoism. For despite her many amazing successes in many, most, fields of human endeavour, Scotland has in some ways underachieved. I have my own theories, and I'll spare you them, as to why Scotland succumbs so readily to deep-rooted cultural insecurity, yields to self-deprecation over self-revelation, surrenders to snide or cosy parochialism over honest and lasting betterment. It needn't be so. Freedom and oppression appear to be the hallmarks of the human condition. They have been in conflict throughout history. A people can't thrive under tyranny, but can flourish when they take a wise and responsible approach to their own affairs. When those in government are fair and good, a people tend toward fairness and goodness. If those in government are corrupt, hypocritical and self-absorbed, then this plants seeds of vexation in a society. I wish for a Scotland that's mature, compassionate, wise, peaceful and free from poverty. I wish this for London too, but it's remarkable to think that the Caledonian pipe dream is more viable than the London one for the time being. Scotland can take her cue from countries other than England. This could make for a more diverse and incrementally better society. Much has been made of the virtues of the Scandinavian model. I lived in Sweden for a year and believe we have much to learn from the thoughtful way the Swedes manage their lives. But I also want to encourage us to look a little further afield, to Bhutan. One of my favourite political initiatives of all time is a concept from Bhutan, gross national happiness. Article 9 of the Constitution of the Kingdom of Bhutan reads, the state shall strive to promote those circumstances that will, that will enable the successful pursuit of gross national happiness. What a wonderful idea. More specifically in the Bhutan framework, gross national happiness is founded upon four pillars and nine domains. The four pillars are good governance, sustainable socioeconomic development, cultural preservation, and environmental guardianship. Without being overly idealistic, anyone remotely engaged with their own inner sense of decency can surely affirm the value in this model. Yet I don't see these four pillars being practiced very effectively on a meaningful scale in London. Likewise, the nine domains seem to me inherently worth developing. Good governance, psychological well-being, balanced time use, community vitality, 
health, education, culture, living standards, ecological resilience. Again, in a stressy, polluted, self-absorbed London of insane property prices and polarised social strata, the vivid, life-enhancing cultivation of these supremely important domains is noticeable mainly by absence, not presence. I'm not naive enough to think that pursuing these elements will lead to a perfect society. No such thing exists. But with visionary effort and concerted dedication, we could use them to inspire a better, fairer, happier Scotland. A Scotland which might be a closer friend, more equal neighbour, and yes, even a role model to London. What a legacy that would be to the Scotland, the England, the world of the future. The future currently remains unclear. Of one thing I'm certain, the vote is likely to be so close that something around half the Scottish population will be left feeling disgruntled, if not outright angry. Acceptance will be key. We're living in interesting times, either side of the border. Whatever happens, and I fervently hope that Scotland gains her independence at last, I take refuge in two easily forgotten truths, that the mind has no dwelling place, and that true freedom comes from within. Le Duracht. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. Um, it's a good time to maybe remind you about your sentences as well, because that's your chance. We don't have, we don't really have questions for the panel and stuff like that. So your chance to respond, to be provoked, to think, to disagree, is in the sentences. So uh, remember and write them. So now we have our panel discussion. So I want to welcome Linda back up to the stage, because uh, Linda and I will um, be speaking. Uh, and the first guest I'd like to welcome to the stage um, uh, is probably best known for his early play about golf that was on at the Byer in St Andrews. But apparently someone told me that he'd written a film called Sunshine on Leith. So I, I guess some of you might have heard of that. So please welcome to say Stephen Greenhorn. And, um, and our, our second guest, um, again, has done astonishing work in, uh, with Stanley Baxter in his radio theatre. But apparently you've got something on at the fringe, have you? It's uh, something called the James Plays, apparently, which um, you might have heard on uh, of the uh, trilogy of Scottish history plays, uh, which are the set of the Edinburgh International Festival. Please welcome to the stage, Rona Monroe. Grant, thanks very much. Uh, so, I guess possibly the first thing is to say that you're both writers who have um, in created in Sunshine on Leith and in the James plays. Uh, I was reflecting on this, you've kind of carved great chunks of Scotland that had been sort of unlain dormant in the kind of cultural stonework, and you've kind of carved them out and given them back to us in terms of the history of the first three James Kings, which was largely unknown. And I think also for Stephen in terms of a representation of Edinburgh that went beyond kind of um, uh, the, the sort of Jekyll and Hyde 
new town, old town, and just was simply a representation of the Edinburgh I recognised. I guess my question is, both of you live and work in London, is that, let's talk Rona with you, is there something about being away that allowed you to get a different perspective on, on Scotland and thereby see a way into writing about it? I suppose it, there must have been. Uh, it's hard to put your finger on what it is. Um, it, you're sort of always very conscious of that Scot in exile that you, you might be inclined to romanticise uh, your, your native country because you're not at that point living in it. Um, so I'm sure there was an element of that in it, that there was a, a sort of nostalgic longing to be in Scotland even though I wasn't. Um, did that draw you to write, or I mean, you know, did you? I what think, drew you to that history in the first place? Uh, I've always loved medieval Scottish history. Uh, I, I attempted to study at university. I did it very, very badly. Um, and I, and I, that I think comes from growing up in rural Scotland and playing lots of pretend games when I ran around ruined castles with a twig pretending it was a sword and I honestly think that was the, the main impulse was to re-inhabit that world. Okay, so just, there was, when we did the, pro, uh, the, the show on Wales the week last weekend, there was a word that I was introduced to, a Welsh word, heraith, I think it is, heraith, which is a, a longing for place, but also a longing for time and a longing for something kind of ungraspable. And I'm wondering if you're running around with a twig and the impulse to write and being distant from Scotland is somehow, is, the, is, the, is that something that's drawing the writing out? Is it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um... That was me. <laughs> Well, I guess it's possible. Well, I suppose what I mean is I'm wondering, I'm wondering about the playing impulse and and the place place within that. I guess because you're also you've also written about the northeast in the past as well. Yes. So I'm just I just want to sort of tease out whether there's something in place that draws writing out. I, I think there is, and I think that's probably also part of the impulse to focus on the medieval or to love the medieval is because of course most of Scotland was rural at that time. I think there's something about rural Scotland. Highland and Lowland that, that gets me, um, just as a place I like living in my imagination, and I think that probably does come from being uh, brought up in a in a very rural place where basically most of my leisure time was my own company running around in the woods. Um, and when we went on holidays, we went on holidays in rural Scotland, so I'd run around in other woods. So that's, I suppose, yeah, my, that's where my imagination was formed, so I'm sure that, that the landscape in the country does have a particular tug on me, yeah. Stephen, um, what, in terms of, did be the way... That's one of those really difficult yeah, questions no, to me no, as well. Yeah. There's, a, there's a Greek word that... <laughs> can barely manage English. Um, so, I guess just to pull the question to you, does does being away from Scotland help you see it differently? So when you were writing Sunshine on Leith, did that affect it? Um, it didn't affect writing the musical, because uh, I was less in London at that point, because it was 2005, 2006, 2007, Dundee. Um, so it was written more or less from Scotland. It, I think it probably did inform the, the battles that I fought in terms of adapting it for the screen, to make sure that it... It, it, that there was some vestige of a real Scotland in there, even though it was a big primary coloured popular musical, that it didn't kind of, it didn't fall over completely into that, the, the tropes of, 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 uh, of the way that um, certain elements of the, the, 
film or like to see Scotland. So it, it, it was always my uh, intention that, that even though we had the, all the standard trappings of a proper musical, people actually pushed her into Song of the Street. Not, it wasn't about a tribute band, it was a proper uh, uh, launching into Song in character. Uh, that actually it was rooted in a, in a reality of Edinburgh that people would recognise, even though it was, it was in a, 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 a musical form. So uh, the battles that I fought for the, the film were about trying to keep that reality as the way I, I, I understood Edinburgh to be, rather than kind of have that slide into a more fantasy element of Edinburgh, where fantasy Edinburgh characters pushed it. So it's one of the temptations was, it was really difficult both in the stage play, but particularly in the film, to, to convince people that actually that you could have essentially realistic three-dimensional characters suddenly burst into song on the street and the audience would run screaming out the doors. Now, you know, if you do that in, in a, an American city or in a period, uh, then actually nobody has a problem with it. But uh, even things like Mamma Mia, they set in a slightly um, fantasized Greek island so you're not in a reality. Whereas what I want to do is try and make it in a reality. So uh, the battle in the film is to try and hang on to that sense of that little bit of reality because that's what was interested in what happens when you've got essentially real people in the back of an armoured personnel carrier or walking down these walk, suddenly bursting into song and dancing. And thankfully people didn't run screaming from the, the theatres. I've got a couple of questions and based firstly on something that um, Rona said, um, which was about I think what you carry with you when you leave and I mean we're all writers so our inner landscape is sometimes much more animated than our external landscape but I'd really love to know from both of you actually what can you even remember what you took with you what were you like when you went to London and what was London like then I you primed me for this about 15 minutes ago, and I was sitting down here thinking about that. And I think, in terms of you know, Rona's primed, Rona's the um, I think, in terms of the writing, the thing that I took with me and still have with me is the sense of audience. Um, so when I'm writing, I, I don't have a, a sort of autonomous metropolitan audience in my head. I'm writing for the people that I have produced plays for and written TV for. I, my family, my friends, that extended audience. Now, without being conscious of that, that's that's a Scottish audience. So actually, when I'm sitting in my office in Wood Green and, and churning out uh, episodes of something that might be set in London, it's still that Scottish audience that actually is my test day voice in my head. Will it work for them? Will they go and make a cup of tea? Will they turn over? Will they you know, think it was worth the ticket price? So I think the, the grounding that I got in Scottish theatre and the the connection with the people who were coming to see it, uh, it is, is what completely informs all the dramatic writing that I do. Those are the people that, that I'm testing it who it's for, and, 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 and hopefully, if you get it right for them, then actually it'll reach a much broader audience as well, because there are certain basics that, that you'll get right. But I think that's, in terms of the technicalities of writing, I think that's what I've taken, rather than a particular skills about dialogue or, 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 or location or any of those things. I think it's a transferable thing about, about a, a sort of accessibility and democracy of audience that I think is instilled in Scottish drama and, and that's what I think I've taken with me. Yeah, and I think um, you continue to live and work in Scotland and so I think what I'm, where I'm trying to get to with this is what, what sense and what way has Scotland changed to you having left, maybe? Well, I can add, I mean, 
most people, I'm, you're outing me now, most people don't know I've gone. You know, and I guess that thing. And I think Stephen's in the same, um, and I'm coming back. Um, uh, Stephen's in the same boat in as much as it, you, you're, you're doing the writing work and your, your physical address is maybe in London, but the, the, the majority of the theatre work is, has always been back here. So you're kind of constructing the place somewhere else, but then rehearsing it and testing it with Scottish audience. So I mean, you know, reiterate everything Stephen said. Um, what have we noticed? What have I noticed changing about Scotland? What was the Scotland that you left, and what is the Scotland that you've come back to? There's a lot more women around uh, <laughs> in our in our profession. That's a big difference, um, and it's not dissing any of the male writers of my generation, but I didn't feel I had a seat at the table, which was as much my fault for being. Um, nervous or self-deprecating or not having the confidence to grab that seat. It wasn't like anyone was stopping me have it, but when I came back there was a community of women artists that I could connect with that was not there when I left. I left a long time ago, I left back in uh, old study, I'd have 24 years ago. So, um, and you know, been coming back since then, but really the life of my son is, is pretty much been in London. And in that time, it is a very, very different environment. And also, I think um, Scottish playwrights are much more confident. And you know, um, people in this room have been a, a part of that. You know, so it's it's um, it's it is a it's more feels much better. Feels better. Feels more confident. Feels like we know who we are. Feels like we know we're Scottish, and it feels like being female is part of that. And that actually is something that we need to say because otherwise we might not notice it's happened. I, I think that's true. I think not just the gender thing, but I think there's a diversity of voices and uh, theatre styles now as well. When I was growing up as a playwright, there was a, there was a sort of um, a standard sort of angry young man voice, and you would all write angry young men plays and. and angry about things and then drink in the bar and all that kind of stuff and then you arrive with all your weird arctic european type things and that, that was the the point where things you get the sense actually there was more than one kind of scotch play you could write and now actually you'd be hard pushed to to, to say what is it that makes a play scottish whereas back then you could say actually it's a working class play about men it might be in a work environment with a certain kind of political edge to it and that, that's not the case anymore and i think that comes out of the confidence you're talking about where anything uh, you can write about anything Scotland out and anybody can write and the, those, the diversity of forum and uh, and also even the location where the plays are put on and how they're put on you look at the, some of the stuff the Scottish work some of the French just now some of it's on uh, online you know that uh, David Lady's got a play that you download uh, and I think that diversity is, is the striking thing that I've seen in the time that, from when I started to come back now. Just keeping up the sort of London Edinburgh theatre theme and the fact that probably both of us is the east so all of us be the east coast and west coast main lines where a great deal of our typing gets done and certainly for me that's the case but do you, do you i suppose another question would be have you found in the last sort of decade or so that london theater or london television has been more receptive to scottish work or has that relationship changed or has that essentially stayed the same i I would say it's not changed a huge amount. I still think it. Oh God, I was going to say no, I'm not going to do that. Um, oh dear. No, no. Go there, Ronan. No, no. I can't think of a way of saying it that isn't outrageously on PC. Um, so. Well, maybe. Yes. <laughs> um, but 
No, I, I don't think that's true. And I think also, I know Stephen and me have both had the experience of you're writing Scottish characters and Scottish stories for telly, and Stephen obviously gets introduced, I don't, um, but we're both writing them. Um, but we both have the um, experience of you deliver them and they go, yes, but they can't speak in Scots, and you go, yes, but they're Scottish characters, yes, but they, yeah, just could you write it in English? And you're like, oh, God, I mean, how much effort is it really to understand that canny means can't? Come on! You know, and, and I think that um, idea that it's almost like kryptonite for script editors in television and film, if you would suggest there's anything like dialect, uh, it really is frustrating. I think that's true. I think it's get, it's it's slightly getting better because there were political decisions made about a, about a, how production budgets would be allocated. So so there are certain quotas that have to be fulfilled and there are certain incentives uh, if, you, if you decide you want to locate something in the north of England there are certain funds that suddenly become available to you. Uh, it didn't stop the fact that when I uh, wrote up uh, a series for ITV that was set in North Yorkshire they filmed it in Surrey because it was more convenient. Um, and there's a default setting in, in a lot of uh, British TV which is actually London's the default and I don't mind things set in London but actually when it's unthinkingly set in London just because it's easier then that, that means that every time you want to do something other than that then it becomes a battle and it should be a battle, it should be a choice and, it, and even if the choice means there's budgetary considerations and then that's what they have to consider but too often it's when I say you're in a meeting and you, you describe a story and actually they default imagine that it's set as the question is that it's South London or North London when I was doing Doctor Who, which is famously all kind of shorter in Cardiff, uh, Russell uh, would argue strenuously that, that actually the default audience hears London. So it was one of the reasons why David Tennant didn't use his own accent in Doctor Who. And uh, whereas now, of course, we've got Capaldi, who is using his accent, and uh, um, I think that's a, a shift for the better. But uh, I used to argue with Russell about the fact that if it, I, I love the fact that Cardiff was doubling for London all the time. But what was the problem about having Cardiff double for Leeds or Glasgow? Why couldn't you set episodes of Doctor Who and still use Cardiff and set up all across the country? So we then wrote a Victorian Scottish one in response to that. But it, it's the, it, you get tied up with notions of production and budgets and think that that anchors them in terms of imagination. Mm. There's no reason why you couldn't set something in Edinburgh and shoot it in South Parts of London. Right? And that seems that leap seems slightly beyond a lot of people. Just to jump uh, to another area, I. I sometimes dream of going and living in London, um, partly to escape. I was thinking of it the other day, like almost like food. There's something very rich about living sort of within a theatre culture like Scotland and a culture like Scotland where everybody kind of knows everybody and everybody kind of knows what's going on and we all kind of know the same poets and films and references. And you long for a sort of astringent, lemony taste of anonymity and just sinking you know sinking away and not actually anybody knowing anything about you or what you do um, I guess just to throw that out to you do do you do do would you give that up you know if I said right come on on the train we're going to be independent get yourselves back here and start writing would what would you miss I, I, I've had no trouble cultivating my anonymity up here <laughs> 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 And I was hardly mobbed as I crossed St Andrews Square. So um, uh, if you're suggesting that independence might bring a change, then actually that, that would be interesting for me. I know exactly what you mean, because there, there was that um, fear, you know, and, and, and I'm, I am sort of in the process of trying to relocate it um, and back up here. There is that fear of losing that very thing you're talking about, and also that thing of grudges of 
things with people that fell out in the Traverse Bar 15 years ago and it's still not quite comfortable. And actually, again, I think it's less of that than there was when I, I was last. You know, and also, the, it's easier. I think it's learning the techniques to avoid it. Seems to me if you don't go on Twitter, you're safe. I think, I think there is a thing. I was talking to Peter Arnott about this a little while ago, and I think the difference for me psychologically, if I were the exam coming, I'm, I'm sort of between Glasgow and London anyway, that's where I'm about, I'm dragging the family up, which is the difference. Uh, but in that shift, um, I was asking about whether he feels different sense of responsibility if he's doing a play anonymously somewhere else, say Coventry, right, as opposed to if he's doing a play up here. And I think I do feel that. I feel that actually that, uh, that if you're, if I was working at National Theatre Scotland, I haven't. But if I was, then I would feel a, 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 a greater sense of responsibility than if I was doing something, say, at the Royal Court, because the Royal Court would be, it would be again a, an artistic freedom, but actually I would feel a responsibility at National Theatre Scotland to represent someone. Now I don't know whether that's just me. But equally within terms of a broadcast, because I was thinking about there's a lot of stuff about what might happen to the BBC and how broadcasting might happen in, in Scotland, right? And I expect that there would be a sense of responsibility among some of the, the TV writers who've supported yes to then try and prove that actually we can produce good TV drama up here as well. And actually that's already building in me that sense, what would I be offering then in an independent Scotland to TV drama to, 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 to show that we could do it up here? So I suppose the that Dan and Empty didn't chime, but actually there is a certain freedom to be a, you know, a small part of a massive complex down there, whereas up here actually the resources are smaller, and if you're lucky enough to be allocated an opportunity, then there's a sense of responsibility that you have to make the most of it. It's not to say that, that you have to toe a party line in terms of political, but you have to kind of, you have to be aware that actually that your success or failure doesn't just affect you. I think Rona must have felt that with the James plays. I, you know, I, I just operated on denial, you know, <laughs> absolute denial, and until uh, we opened, uh, and then the terror was off the scale. And Linda knows, <laughs> Linda knows. She and she came and sat beside me on the press day night because uh, we did the three in the day, and and I needed, I needed someone there who was a great friend, but also who got it, who understood the terror. And I don't know how I'd have got through it without it, honestly. But yeah, ab absolute, yeah, all that, all the eggs in one basket, and everyone going, this has to represent something. And did, none of us thought about that until that moment, and then it was like, oh God, we're all going to die. But it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> which we're brings still here. me very neatly, actually, to my last question, which is about. One of the most remarkable things that both of you have achieved is associated with the scale of what you've done. They've been huge. You've reached tens of thousands, millions of, of viewers, audience members. And I feel slightly uncomfortable even asking this question, but is being in London, was being in London, was being out of Scotland with its limited resources, was that a major enabler in, in those things going on? I'll uh, go. You want to go? Uh, you go. go. No! <laughs> and in fact, that is something, um, you know, that I think, because the resources were here. The arts are so much better resourced in Scotland than they are in England. And, you know, things like Playwright Studio doesn't even exist in England. Um, the, the amount of uh, money put into new writing, it, it, there's not a comparison to be made. I mean, the way the arts are, are, and it's no accident, I suppose, that so many people in the arts are yes voters because, you know, you can see, you can see the effect and the effect on 
national uh, confidence and the effect on our confidence as an artistic community. So no, and in some ways, I would. I mean, most of my work has still been back up in Scotland. And to be honest, being in, in London has been, especially when I had a young child, was a bit of a disadvantage because it was really difficult getting back. But um, no, I, I think, and then I think there's this myth that you have to be there because that's where everyone's networking and everyone's doing the meetings. But I mean, how many of us as writers are good at networking and doing the meetings? And how often is that policy even effective? So I know I think that's a big myth, actually. I, I think that's true. I, th I think the I think there are there are structures there that you have to go and engage with if you want to access certain things. Uh, Sunshine and Leith, you remember, was a Dundee rep show and actually the film wouldn't have happened without that Dundee rep uh, investment and support through putting on that stage show. The film... It started its life uh, with a small Glasgow production company, Black Camel, and then DNA, who are based in London but run by Andrew MacDonald, who's from Edinburgh, came on board, and then the funding came mainly from uh, down south, but with Creative Scotland and stuff. But uh, that uh, that process uh, wouldn't wouldn't have been affected by whether I was still writing in Glasgow or Edinburgh or down in London. And, and in some cases, I think that my spending more time in London has actually diminished my um, status, if you like, within meetings because it's too easy now to get me to come in for a script meeting to fiddle with something. There was a point where when I was living in Glasgow and I uh, was working on things like Doctor Who where they had to think really hard about script meetings because they would have to fly me down. Mm. Uh, and uh, they would think, well, does this require a meeting or can we do it in a phone call? Or does this know, is it really that important that we have to communicate it at all? So actually, because they were forced to think about those processes because of the geographical distance, there was a certain kind of cachet about every time there's a meeting, it was a significant meeting. And now, because they know that I'm, I'm in London a lot, it's easy to get me in for a chat. And actually, a lot of those chats are just a massive waste of my time. Where you, you spend the whole morning chatting to people who are all salaried and you're the only person there who's, who's a freelance thinking this is the morning's work that I've lost chatting to you people. So uh, it's that thing about, um, uh, about the, there was a cachet about the fact that you were coming down specifically for a task and things were agendered and there was decision points. Whereas now it, 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 there's, there's much more inclination to waste your time a bit, which I find frustrating. So I'm looking forward to coming back up and making it clear that actually if you want me, then actually you have to have a reason and agenda and a time down there because actually there'll be expenses paid out and actually you have to be sure that this is worth doing. Um, we're running short of time, so just a quick question. Uh, we had Dan Rebellato uh, in one of our earlier podcasts proposing that Scotland uh, and London should actually form a, a Calalandonia. <laughs> <laughs> Basically proposing uh, um, that we take London with us uh, into independence, <laughs> which was a fun idea. But the, um, I guess I wonder, the, the old thing about the nothing so, what was it, nothing so terrifying as a Scotsman on the make in London. Uh, let's imagine that there is a yes vote. What, what do you think actually will, do you, how do you see the relationship continuing? Let's, particularly in the arts, do you, think, do you think it will change? Do you think it will evolve? Do you think it will improve? Um, that eternal uh, back and forth between... Um, between the two places, perhaps if you start, Stephen, I I think it'll be interesting. I think that the, there's uh, it'll be interesting to see how Scottish theatre is then responded to. I think there'll be a upheaval and anger and resentment and all that kind of stuff, and then it'll settle down. What it settles down to, it's going to be interesting, because we've always uh, I'm talking collective for us here that I felt that there was a there was a, a there was a route for Irish playwrights in to say the National Theatre on the South Bank that was much more open than there was for Scottish playwrights, despite the fact that actually that, that we were co-funding that, that national theatre. Um, so it'd be interesting to see whether 
like I was saying before, about that sense of distance and a declared geographical difference then makes our product somehow more interesting or is branded differently rather than just those noisy northerners. Um, I, I think it'll take a while for people to work out how they want to do that. I think there'll be a... I was going to say that that sense of obligation that they should have had but seemingly didn't have will evaporate and it might be better that actually the, 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 if they welcome us down there it's not with a sense of obligation but with a sense of interest and engagement. Um, yeah, I, I think as well that it's... I, I don't think at the moment anyone... In, it, the, the thing about London, the thing I love about London is everyone in London has pretty well come from somewhere else. So, um, it, but that isn't necessarily represented by the people who come to the theatre. So it's almost like there's 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 two. I think there'll be a, 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 a two reactions. I think the majority of Londoners, all coming from somewhere else themselves, will actually be perfectly open to it. Um, what what the reaction? I think there's. I don't think there's any expectation there'll be a yes vote, and I don't think there's any expectation of having an emotional reaction because they don't know they have an emotional feeling about Scotland being part of the UK. So I think what will be interesting is if there is a yes vote is when they suddenly go, oh my God, you've left. You know, when, the re when an emotional reaction kicks in, if it does, and then there, it's either going to be a backlash or, a, or an increased value. Um, but but in, which it will be, who knows? But in the longer term, it, I mean, I know there's that sort of thing, but in the longer term, do you, you basically see it sort of continuing in, in essence that there'll always be a traffic back and forth of writers yeah i think, uh, the, I think uh, the irish models are, are yeah, useful i mean there's no shortage of irish tv writers working in london there's no there's, the bbc doesn't have a kind of a, a point where they check your passport before they read your treatment it's um the, the, they're, what they're looking for is, is good stories and good writing and i and, and we share an english well yeah. Share a sort of English language, right? Which means that actually, as a marketplace, then that London remains open. So, um, we have to wind up now. I just want to say though that when, for, for, I think I'd be speaking for a lot of people in the audience, and certainly for Linda and me up here, that I think with Sunshine on Leith and with the James plays, those are two extraordinary things of the last couple of years that I think will um, that have really, really helped uh, to give more room for every Scottish writer. And I think just from that point of view, um, I, I would uh, thank you for that. But I think for the audience, it would be great if you could give a round of applause for Owen and Stephen. So we've just got a few more things to get through. Keep thinking of your sentences. We normally have a poem. Um, our poet today had to call off at the last minute, and uh, I did that terrible thing where I went, oh, I, I have a poem. <laughs> and now you will not prize this microphone from my greasy hand. Um, so this is really a short and slightly silly poem, but it's in honor partly of Rona, who, who wrote a play called Pandas um, and partly in honour of um, uh, the Edinburgh panda who we think is pregnant or we're hoping sh she's pregnant. Does anybody know any news on the panda pregnancy? Because I, 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 I thought you'd all be right up to the minute on that. Okay, it's also a thing which tangentially is about um, 
I think it's tangentially about uncertainty and undecidedness and risk and whether you should jump in. So here it is. So it's called Panda Impromptu. Oh, Amanda, why so pensive? I know the coffee here is expensive, but the zoo cafes are favorite lair, and I have paid for it, to be fair. An hour you've sat with distant look, occasionally glancing at your book, as if you nurse some ache or yen. It started at the panda's den. Among the vulgar crowds there waiting for the long-awaited mating, we watched as Chan Chan bathed in rushes, cooling her hormonal flushes. Wednesday, they say, today's her day. She'll maybe let him have his way. She might not, though, or he might decide not to mate but fight. I found it crass and said so. If I was Yang Guang, I said, I'd say no. No to anthropomorphic voyeurism. That's when I noticed our little schism. A something, a darkening of the sky. I'm at a loss to fathom why. Amanda, please tell me what's wrong. For what lost object do you long? Oh, Brian, it's obvious. Must I say it? Doesn't my every move display it? In disarray, I'm overturned. And frankly, now I'm feeling spurned. Didn't you notice me brush against you as we stood and watched the koi poo? Didn't you see me fix my hair in the glass of the tiger's lair? Or when I got a little bolder and slipped my T-shirt off the shoulder to feel the cool thrill of exposure near the polar bear enclosure? <laughs> Didn't you notice any of it? Well, I did think you seemed a bit hot, but that didn't seem unreasonable given the weather's so unseasonal. Unseasonal, Brian! The spring woods sown with wild garlic and pheromone. The air is warm and sweet and heady. The daffodils are out already. Must I use semaphore? Must I dictate it? I'm in love, Brian, and I want to make it. Love, not of head, but crotch. So what if people want to watch? <laughs> well, Amanda, goodness, jings. Obviously, I've been missing things. <laughs> Making love, you say. You mention crotch. Surely love's a job we'd botch. The likes of us so clumsy, hurried, embarrassed, anxious, slightly worried. I'm no libertine, you're no rake. Love's too complex for the likes of us to make. Brian, it's simple. Here's the thing. We must give ourselves to the spring. Let melt our winter skin, be fecund, bloom for just one day, one second. We're panda, yes, but animal too. We meet bi-weekly at the zoo. Pandas glory in their pandaness. Let us glory in Brian and Amandaness. <laughs> come take my hand, come say you will, follow me up Kostorfin Hill. <laughs> Six months now we've been going steady. It's Wednesday, Brian, today I'm ready. Um, I thank you for your enormous indulgence with me. And I welcome to the stage to give a letter from Manchester, David Morgan. Cheers. Great. Uh, just while I've got the microphone, I'm just going to ask a quick question, which is, um, why would you name your Wayne Zoe? <laughs> Zoe Berry? That's just stupid. Yeah. Anyway. Um, it's actually a letter from Liverpool. Um, and the theme of it is in England, but not of it. 
those were the first words that greeted my eyes when I walked out of the front of Lime Street Station about 10 years ago. It was a slogan emblazed on an advertising hoarding directly opposite the station that the council had set up to act as a kind of welcome to visitors for the city. It was covered in kind of sayings and quotes that tried to capture something of the city and its people. And that phrase, in England, but not of it, was the largest and most prominent. I turned left out of the station and started walking down the road. And within about 200 yards, I found myself thinking, bloody hell, this place feels real like Glasgow about 1988. <laughs> Pretty much there and then I resolved that if I ever had to move away from Scotland for any reason, then Liverpool would be pretty high on the list of places that I'd like to move to. And sure enough, as fate would have it, that's exactly how it panned out. I moved to Liverpool just over five years ago. I packed up my stuff, I loaded it in the van, uh, and I set off. And of course, on the day I left, I said cheerio to my family. I put on my best smile, and I told them the lie. The big lie. The lie that generations of Scots have been telling each other since probably as far back as the 15th century. I'm pretty sure my aunts and uncles probably said something similar when they moved to England about 40 or 50 years ago. Maybe my cousins said it when they moved to Australia and Mexico more than 20 years ago. And of course, it doesn't feel like a lie when we say it. We genuinely mean it. We genuinely want to come back someday, maybe once we've seen the world or maybe made a bit of money. But fate makes liars of us. Within a few years, we find ourselves putting down roots, and suddenly it doesn't seem so simple when you've got kids and a job and a mortgage to think about. I wonder if Pete's mum told her family the lie, and Pete's my next-door neighbour in Liverpool, um, and a nicer guy you could not hope to meet. Um, he's an artist, and he still gets down to his studio every day because he's determined not to let his Parkinson's get in the way of his painting. Um, and the two of us were stood in our front doorsteps last year and we were chatting away. And it was just before the Scotland-England friendly match. And he says to me, oh, you know, I'll be cheering for you, mate. I've always supported Scotland over England. My mum was Scottish, you know. In England, but not of it. It was only after I'd lived in Liverpool for a few years that I really started to appreciate just how accurate that description is. One of the moments that I realised it was on an anti-racism rally kind of last year. Um, and I was kind of walking along and I was pushing the pram and I just felt this sudden tug in my sleeve and I turned around and there was this wee woman about my mother's age maybe and uh, she stood there and she said to me oh I'm really sorry to bother you but um, you know we saw the yes badge on your bag and we just had to come up and say hello how are we going to win this referendum <laughs> um, and I was chatting away to her and it transpired that she had moved or her family had moved to Liverpool when she was about three years old and when she retired, she, her and her husband did buy a wee place up in Glencoe and they split their time between Liverpool and there, which means that they get a vote in a few weeks' time. Um, and, you know, she just couldn't contain her excitement as she started telling me about how every time they're up in Scotland, they would turn out and lend a hand with the yes stall in kind of Fort William. And, you know, those people aren't unusual or untypical. Pretty much everyone I speak to in Liverpool is broadly supportive of Scottish independence. Usually the only thing that anyone expresses any worries about is the fear that they'll wind up with perpetual Tory governments as a result. And of course I always explain to people that that's just not the case, that there's only maybe about two years out of the last 100 where Labour would have needed its Scottish MPs to form a government. And a lot of the time I say that and that's enough to convince them and that's that. But you know, sometimes you just still get this sense that they're not really buying it. 
and you can sort of feel their worry and their fear and that can actually be pretty frustrating sometimes and sometimes you just want to say to people for God's sake do you not realise this is the biggest lie people in England have been told over the last two years in fact moreover it's an explicitly xenophobic anti-Scottish lie that was originally put about by a bunch of Tory backbenchers doesn't it do me any favours doesn't do anyone else anyone any favours so why do you want to go on perpetuating that myth But, you know, for a long time I found it difficult to relate to where they're coming from, uh, to appreciate that kind of fear that maybe they were going to lose something. But recently I've started to find myself in a wee bit of a kind of similar position. Now that it's all come down to the wire, I've been finding myself getting a bit nervous, getting a wee bit of stage fright, maybe a wee bit of pre-match nerves. Um, you see, some time ago I started ticking that little box that says Scottish, not British. And let me be absolutely clear, I don't support Scottish independence because I consider myself Scottish, not British. I consciously chose to start describing myself as Scottish, not British, because I support Scottish independence. But what if we wake up on September the 19th and there's been a no vote? Where does that leave me, the stateless citizen of a country that exists only in our imaginations? The stateless citizen of a country that exists only in the lies that we tell each other. Well, I guess the only thing I can do is start taking heed of the advice that I give other people. Solidarity only has a meaning if each one of us is willing to stand up for ourselves. You need to take a stand wherever you happen to be at that moment of time. If you want it, you need to fight for it. That's the reason why, back at the start of June, I signed up as a member of a political party for the first time in my life. It's the reason why, come next May, I'll be standing for election for Liverpool City Council as the Green Party candidate for Green Bank Ward. And you know, and you know I'm not alone. Um, dozens of people are kind of joining up every week. And you know, can I just say, don't let any survey pull the wool over your eyes. Right now, across England, there are millions of people willing us on, millions of people who get it. I really feel that the peoples of these islands could be on the cusp of something great, a popular movement for change, the likes of which we've probably not seen since the days of the Chartists. All it needs is for somebody to light the spark and we could be on our way. Please don't let us down. Cheers. Thanks very much, David. Um, Second mention of the Chartists are all back to Bowie's. Don't let anybody say that we're not um, one of the most historically uh, interesting podcasts and shows available on the fringe. A, so, London is dot, dot, dot. Have you all done your sentences? Have you all got your sentences? Now, even now is the time to finish. Just quickly finish. London is dot, dot, dot. And um, Sarah will come around with the bibbity-bobbity hat and collect all your sentences. London is... Now's the chance to share pens if you need to share pens or anything. Lots of people finishing off. One thing to let you know is the... Um, the National Library of Scotland is having a referendum archive, is keeping a referendum archive, and um, they came and s spoke to us about whether we had material. And um, 
we'd been doing these sentences, we were very badly organized and on, we didn't arrange to have pens and paper on every chair. So on the first couple of days, we just asked, like we've asked you to do it on these bits of paper. And um, when the referendum people came, I thought that they would want to have um, our emails from important people. But in fact, as soon as they saw all the scraps of paper with your handwritten thoughts, they immediately said, that is what we want. And so at the end of this process, all of these are going in the National Library of Scotland's referendum archive. Um, I was here one day when Jenny Lindsay did um, a wonderful thing with these. She actually um, read them out in a way that made them sound as though they were a perfectly formed poem, which I'm not going to do. But no, I, I think I'll hand them to you. Oh, you'll hand them to me. Oh, I, I am going to do that, turns out. <laughs> okay, London is, London is. Are you all right? Yeah. London is beautiful and still going to be there if we vote yes. London is the model for the Hunger Games. London is mucky. London is not to be confused with England. London is the modern Babylon. London is not the centre of the universe. London is beautiful, bloated and broken. London is one of the greatest cities in the world which just happens to be on our island. London is not England or every England. London is where all my mates fucked off to. <laughs> London is a great big vibrant city. I love to visit it, but it's very far away. London is a hive of workers in small shops making a living, drones in towers making money, the queen in a palace making tourism. London is at the other end of the East Coast rail line. Keep it in public ownership. <laughs> London is a perfect example for a cosmopolitan city. London is the closest place I have to home. London is one big place when it needs to be many places when it suits it, sorry? Oh. Apologies. Try again with that one. You try it. London is one big place when it needs to be in many places when it suits it. Well done. Two more. London is full of people who are faintly under the impression that Scotland is independent already. <laughs> London is a place to visit. Grand. Um, there's so many more of these. There's so many more of these, and there's really brilliant ones in there. 
Uh, we do read them all out on the podcast and we'll get them all up on the website. But for now, I think that was a fantastic selection. So give yourselves a round of applause. Um, so we'll just close uh, with some more music. But before we do that, just to first of all say an enormous thank you to all our guests today. Thank you to Stephen Greenhorn. To Rona Monroe. To David Morgan, to Adam Ramsey, to Kevin McNeil, to Linda McLean, to David Bowie, Bowie. Um, well, we'll get him when he comes on. And just to let everybody know that tomorrow uh, in, the, in the tent we are doing uh, So Wiped Out With Things As They Are... The Common Wheel with Robin McAlpine. Please come down. In the meantime, please welcome to the stage for the second time the wonderful Latch. Is this the cable here? We put these wires all over the stage. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I think one result, if, if uh, Scotland gets its. Uh, independence that it will have on Americans is uh, they probably will no longer think that England is the capital of Scotland, which is what they'll answer mostly in a survey. I'm not sure if, uh, I'm, not sure if I'm allowed to vote or not. Maybe somebody let me know. I've, been a re I've got a temporary residency here, temporary residency. Uh, but I was thinking that maybe I could do a write-in vote. I was thinking that I wanted to vote for Scotland uh, to stay in the United Kingdom, but just kick England the fuck out. Is that, is that possible? You know, Scotland, Northern Ireland, um, Wales, yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, all over the world, people seem to be vying for uh, their seat at the table, their position of power. Uh, Alex Salmon said the other day if he could drop out of the race and it would still guarantee that Scotland would be uh, independent, he would gladly do it. Um, but I think there would be somebody to just jump in his chair as soon as he did, don't you think? So anyway, this is my closing song. Last night I dreamt I was a stagecoach with aristocratic ladies on my velvet seats I heard their rich whispers like the soft crumple of satin sheets And my floorboards creaked with painful ecstasy at the shuffle of their feet And I woke crying in my bed from the dreams of positions of power then I dreamt I was the coach's horses Kept in the stable with the flies And the bridle bit into my mouth And it stung like a million lies And my muscles ached From pulling those ladies Through their useless lives And I woke in the shining sweat Of the slaves Positions of power. Ooh, positions of power. 
that I dreamt I was the ladies. Their laughter and jewels my own. We whispered plans to fire that driver. And what he'd do if we let him stay on. And I only heard my old merriment as the coach and horses moaned. And I woke crying in despair. I knew there'd never be an empty chair in the positions of power. Latch. Thanks very much. We've run over. I hope you enjoy the rest of your afternoon at the Fringe. If you want to hang around in the bar afterwards, there'll be a lot of us hanging around to carry on the conversation. Thanks very much. Bye bye. These are the sentences from Thursday, the 21st of August. London is. London is the capital of the home counties, or Russia, or France, but not Scotland. London is en route from the older via... I don't know what that says. London is a dinosaur. Independence is the comet. London is a greedy, vicious, complacent nation-state of its own. London is egocentric and narcissistic. London is remote from the rest of the UK and a disproportionate magnet for UK investment. London is calling to the faraway towns. London is where I grew up, Edinburgh is where I live and where my future is. London is calling, London is not calling all the shots anymore. London is a whirlpool, London is not a yurt. London is a leech that sucks the blood out of the rest of the UK. London is a petty and spiteful child, scared to lose a toy it's long since stopped caring about. London is calling. London is far, far away, full of folk, fedivinous speak like me, all consuming. London is not a career destination at the top of any ladder. It's not the centre of the cultural universe. The world exists outside London and it's beautiful and welcoming and much, much friendlier. London is too insular. London is the capital. London is my playground. London is not Westminster. London is not the centre of the universe. London is biodiverse and vibrant. London is a dickhead, bruv. London is an amazing melting pot of people, culture and sights. But should it be the centre of power and influence in the UK? London is a pragmatist. It will thrive with a yes or no vote. London is divided north and south, black and white. I love London. London is not where Scotland's future should be decided. London is the model for the Hunger Games. London is mucky. London is not to be confused with England. London is the modern Babylon. London is beautiful, bloated and broken. London is one of the greatest cities in the world, which just happens to be on our island. London is not England or even English. London is a great, big, vibrant city. I love to visit, but it's very far away. London is a hive of workers in small shops making a living, drones in towers making money, the queen in a palace making tourism. London is not the centre of the universe. London is at the other end of the East Coast Rail Line. Keep it in public ownership. London is a perfect example of a cosmopolitan city. London is the closest place I have to home. London is one big place when it needs to be and many places when it suits it. London is full of people who are faintly under the impression that Scotland is independent already. 
London is a place to visit. London is beautiful and still going to be there if we vote yes. London is an increasingly hostile environment, but it's not my enemy. It was my home until I grew up, until I opened my eyes, until I learned to love it from afar. London is the centre of the universe, but only for people who live there. London is all-consuming. London is a tax haven. London is the home of David Bowie. London is too big to fail, maybe. London is where all my mates fucked off to.